So we're going we're gonna to be in Colossians this morning. We're going to pick back up where we left off. And last time, about a month ago, actually it was about a month and a half ago, this time around, we, were, we finished chapter 1. And so we're going to be starting chapter 2 this morning. So if you go ahead and turn there, Colossians chapter 2, if you're using a blue Bible we provide, it's on page 983. And our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 5. I intend for us to get through all of that this morning, but there's a lot of stuff I was, I couldn't stop writing, and you know, if we just need to end where we are, we'll pick it back up next month, because as a letter, it all kind of, each verse flows into the next one. Rather than rush through this, let's bask in the goodness of God's word. So why don't we read it, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2 of Colossians. Paul writes this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So you see verse 4, you notice that, That verse is important to keep in mind as we work our way through this text, because as I mentioned in the introduction to this book, there was some false teaching in and around Colossae that was to some degree confusing or distracting the believers who lived in that area. And here in chapter 2, verse 4 is the first time that Paul mentions it. And there's much speculation as to the exact source and nature of this false teaching. But what's evident from Paul's letter, if we kept reading, we'll see that at the very least, the proponents of this teaching were trying to convince those in the church that they needed to supplement their faith in Christ. They needed to supplement it with external religious rituals and practices in order to maintain God's favor or in order to attain some higher level of spirituality, which presumably would bring them closer to God. And in response to this, Paul's instruction to the Colossians in this letter, as we have seen, has been focused on the supremacy of Christ over all things and the sufficiency of Christ in all things, so that they would not be lured into thinking that they needed to pursue man-made philosophies and traditions and rituals and disciplines in order to live lives that are worthy of Christ, that is, lives that are holy and pleasing to him. And that was Paul's intention here as well in this text, so keep that in mind as we, as we work our way through it and look what he, at what he wrote here. 
Now, last time we finished working through verses 24 to 29 in chapter 1, the rest of the end of the chapter. And in this passage, Paul informed the Colossians of his ongoing work as an apostle of Jesus Christ in the ministry of the gospel. That's what he was informing them of and, and describing to them. And more specifically, he told them that he was joyfully and sacrificially laboring in the work of the gospel for their sake. And at the beginning of our text this morning, we see that the Apostle Paul provided some clarification as to why he was informing them of his ongoing work in gospel ministry on their behalf. He wanted their hearts to be encouraged. This, this passage is really a passage of encouragement. And so let's look at verse 1 in the first part of verse 2. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that labor to see him, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. And the first word in verse 1 indicates that this statement is linked with the previous verse. Chapter 1, verse 29. And in that verse, we see that, that Paul had used the word struggle in its verbal form. And therefore, when we see Paul say in chapter 2, verse 1, how great a struggle I have for you, we know that he's referring to what he was just speaking of, and that is his ministry on their behalf. So in verses 28 and 29 in chapter 1, Paul concluded his description of his ministry by saying this. Verse 28, Him that is Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, that is, to this end, I toil. I work to the point of exhaustion. Struggling, that is, exerting all of my effort with all his, Christ's, energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul's goal was that, what? They would become mature in Christ. And he was doing everything he could, struggling with all the energy that Christ was powerfully working within him to help Move them to that end. And in chapter 2, these first two verses, we see that he wanted them to know this in order that their hearts might be encouraged. Now, notice that Paul is not only speaking of encouraging the hearts of the Colossian Christians. He mentions some other folks. He mentions those in Laodicea and all those whom he says have not seen him face to face. And you may wonder, well, how is Paul's description of his ministry in his letter to the Colossians supposed to be an encouragement to those in Laodicea and perhaps elsewhere? Well, although this letter is indeed addressed to the Colossians, it was Paul's intention that it be shared and read not only among the Christians in Colossae, but also among those in Laodicea, which was just 11 miles west of Colossae, not too far from there. And perhaps 
Maybe his intention was even that this letter would be shared and read among those in the neighboring city of Hierapolis, which was just six miles north of Laodicea. Paul expressed his intention for his letter to be shared during his final greetings in chapter 4, towards the end of this letter, in which he wrote, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Then in verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. Therefore, when Paul said in chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, he had in mind not only the Colossian Christians, but also those in Laodicea and perhaps even those in Hierapolis as well. They're all part of the same region, the Lycus Valley, this cluster of cities there. And this is likely why Paul said, their hearts rather than your hearts. You see that where he says in order that, or that their hearts might be encouraged? He's implying that this is meant to encourage all of them. And what we see here is that one thing they all had in common was what? They hadn't seen Paul face to face, right? They hadn't seen him. They've never met him. And as we learned before, these cities were in a region where Paul had not personally ministered. He might have traveled through there, but he hadn't stationed himself there and and ministered there. The Christians there had learned the gospel from this fellow Epaphras, who was a Colossian native, who had most likely learned the gospel from Paul some years back in the city of Ephesus, which was a hundred miles west of where they lived. Pretty long distance. Needless to say, and as Paul indicates in chapter 2, verse 1, the Christians in this region, except for a few, had never met Paul in person, though they would have known him or known of him through Epaphras. And Paul, in this personal letter to them, sought to encourage their hearts with the account of his ongoing gospel work for their sake. Though they had never met, Paul, along with his fellow workers, as we saw in the opening of this letter, they had been diligently praying for them. Though they did not know him personally, he was reaching out to them in brotherly love by way of this letter in which he labored to give them in-depth instruction in order that they might have a greater understanding of the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. So what was Paul seeking to encourage them in? What was he encouraging them in? Well, if we go back a little bit, we'll see that Paul, after he said in verse 22 of chapter 1, that the outcome of their reconciliation to God by means of the sacrificial death of Christ was that they be presented holy and blameless and above approach before him. He said as a warning after this, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
However, he didn't just keep them on edge with this warning. He didn't say, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Moving along now, I have some other things to write. He didn't keep them on edge with the warning. He then went on in verses 24 to 29, as we saw, to explain that he was toiling and struggling in the ministry of the gospel for their sake in order that they might become mature in Christ. Therefore, I would say that that Paul wanted their hearts to be encouraged to be stable and steadfast in the faith, to persevere in the truth of of the gospel and to grow up. In Christ. And certainly we should also have that same encouragement as a result of reading and studying the contents of this epistle. Now, why would Paul have been so eager to encourage the hearts of those whom he had never met? He never met them. They don't know each other personally, but he was eager to encourage their hearts. As we saw in the opening of this letter, it's because he had learned that they too had believed the gospel, and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that their faith in Christ was bearing fruit, showing it to be genuine. What did this mean? Well, it meant that they too had received the grace of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, had a duty to make the word of God fully known to them so that they might become fully mature in Christ. He had an obligation. However, Paul's eagerness to encourage them, to encourage their hearts, these people, these saints whom he had never met, it was not just out of a sense of duty as an apostle, but also out of a sense of genuine love. And I think we see that in his letter. They too had been joined by the Holy Spirit to Christ and had become fellow members of the body of Christ. This meant not only that they had been bought with the precious blood of Jesus and therefore were considered precious themselves, but also that, having been joined by the Holy Spirit to Christ, they had received adoption as sons of God the Father. And Paul had addressed them at the beginning of this letter as faithful brothers in Christ. Paul wanted to encourage the hearts of these men and women whom he'd never met Because they were members of the same spiritual family, the family of God. They had been joined by the Holy Spirit to Christ, and thus they had been joined to one another as the body of Christ. And I believe that's why, or that's what Paul makes reference to in the next part of verse 2 in chapter 2. So if you turn there, look at that. He says that their hearts may be be encouraged being knit together in love. Now, the Greek noun for hearts is plural and feminine, whereas the participle that is translated as being knit together is plural and masculine. There's a reason I'm telling you this. What this means is that the phrase being knit together does not refer to their hearts, but to them. To them. That is, the Christians in and around Colossae and Laodicea. They had been knit together in love. And while this may not seem like much a distinction, 
I would say it helps us see that Paul is not speaking here of, of mere sentiment among Christians. Rather, he's speaking of their spiritual union with Christ and thus with one another in the body of Christ. This is the sense in which Paul uses the term knit together, the exact same term, term again later in this chapter, in verse 19, if you'll look there, in which he refers to Christ as the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So in verse 2, Paul is speaking of the reality of their salvation and new life in Christ. Therefore, we should understand Paul is saying this, leading in from verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, that is, for all y'all out there, in order that your hearts may be encouraged, you who have been knit together in love. And I think that Paul did not stop with the statement, in order that your hearts may be encouraged, but continued on with, you who have been knit together in love. For this reason, he wanted to once again point them to the realities of their salvation in Christ and thus provide even more encouragement for them to be stable and steadfast in the faith, to persevere in the truth of the gospel, and to mature in Christ. Paul's letter to them is about Christ's supremacy over everything, and therefore his sufficiency in everything with regard to their salvation and spiritual growth and communion with God. So Paul reminds them that they have been knit together. They have been joined together as one in the body of Christ. And in verse 2, we see that they have been knit together in something and to something. In something and to something. First, Paul says that they have been knit together in what? In love. It is in the sphere of God's love, that is, that they have been delivered from sin, reconciled to God, joined to the Son, and knit together in him. They have been knit together in the sphere of God's love. In 1 John, the Apostle John wrote this, chapter 4 of this epistle. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So again, in the sphere of God's love, they've been delivered from sin, reconciled to God, joined to the Son, and knit together in him. And in Romans, Paul wrote in this epistle that God's love has been poured 
into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit whom he has given us. And I think one excellent quote that I want to share with you, it's a little lengthy, but it's, a, it's a, from a fantastic book I've been reading with my wife called Delighting in the Trinity by a pastor named Michael Reeves. And I think he really captures this beautiful picture of the salvation that is ours in Christ and the reality that we indeed in the sphere of God's love, have been joined to him and knit together in love. Listen to how he he describes this reality of our salvation. He says, It is the Spirit who unites us to Christ. He imparts the blessings of Christ, the head, to his body, the church. He takes what is Christ's and makes it ours so that in the beloved Son, we might be the beloved children of God. He unites us to the Son so that the Father's love for the Son also encompasses us. He draws us to share the Father's own enjoyment of the Son. And he causes us to share in the Son's delight in the Father. By the Spirit uniting me to Christ, the Father knows and loves me as his Son. By the Spirit I begin to know and love him as my Father. By the Spirit I begin to love aright, unbending me from my self-love. He wins me to share the Father's pleasure in the Son and the Son's in the Father. By the Spirit, I, slowly, begin to love as God loves, with his own generous, overflowing, self-giving love for others. I would just read the whole book up here. We don't have time for that. (laughs) Highly recommend it. So we saw at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Colossians that he was thankful to God after learning of their love. For all the saints and their love in the Spirit. He mentions that. I've heard of this. Your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints. I've been told of your love in the Spirit. So the reality of their salvation was that they had been knit together in God's love. And Paul then goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 2 that they had not only been knit together in love, but also to all the riches of full assurance of understanding. First of all, the word translated as full assurance can also be taken to mean fullness, which would then produce the expression the fullness of understanding. In other words, complete understanding. I think that's what he's intending here. Now, you'll notice that the ESV says, to reach all the riches, right? You see that? To reach all the riches. The word reach is not in the Greek text, but the translators supplied it in order to convey the idea that Paul was speaking of a goal here. The Greek text literally says, knit together in love and into or to 
all the wealth, all the riches, in love and to all the wealth. So their union with Christ and with the Father and with one another by means of the Holy Spirit had brought them into all the wealth of complete understanding. They were not only knit together in love, but they'd been brought into all the wealth of complete understanding. Paul then explained that he meant by what he meant by this in the following statement. And in the ESV translation, it says, and, you see this? After that statement, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. But in the Greek text, it says, to the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Starting from the phrase knit together, it reads as follows. Knit together in love and to all the wealth of complete understanding. To knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. So what does this mean? It means that all the wealth of complete understanding has been defined or clarified. All the wealth of complete understanding is found in knowing Christ. That is why Paul went on to say in verse 3 that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. So speaking of your salvation, knit together in the sphere of God's love and to all the wealth of complete understanding which is found in Christ Why? Because in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this isn't to say that they had nothing more to learn. Congratulations, are you in Christ? Okay, you've got all the wisdom and knowledge you need. He's not saying that. Rather, he was saying that they had access, and you, if you are in Christ, have access to everything you need to learn in the person of Christ. So it's not that you have nothing more to learn, it's that you have access to everything you need to learn in Jesus Christ. God, the eternal Son, the one in whom and through whom and for whom are all things. He's the source of all wisdom and knowledge. With regard to the knowledge for life and godliness, they were rich because they possessed Christ. Same with you. With regard to knowledge for life and godliness, if you possess Christ, you are rich. The Colossians had been joined to Christ in love, and they had come to know him personally. In commenting on this verse, or at least this portion of this verse, one commentator says this, There is a fullness of wisdom in him that is in Christ, as he has perfectly revealed the will of God to mankind. Observe, the treasures of wisdom are hidden not from us, but for us in Christ. Do you think that the rest of the world living in rebellion to God, hating God and hating especially the Son of God, Jesus Christ, do they have access to this true wisdom and knowledge? No, it is hidden from them. The God of this world has blinded their eyes, blinded them, kept them from seeing 
this richness, this glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the treasures of wisdom are hidden not from us but for us in Christ. Those who would be wise and knowing must make application to Christ. We must spend upon the stock which is laid up for us in him and draw from the treasures which are hidden in him. He is the wisdom of God and is of God made unto us wisdom. That is, he is our wisdom. Another comment on this passage from John MacArthur's commentary. I like how he worded this. He said, and you can see how he, he had read this, this other comment I just read. There is no hidden spiritual knowledge necessary to salvation and sanctification outside of Christ. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ, however, are hidden from all but Christians. So we see that same thought there. And because Christ is sufficient, there is no need for the writings of any cult, philosophy, or psychology to supplement the Bible. He, Christ, is the source of all true spiritual knowledge. So this brings us to verse 4 where Paul explained the reason for his emphasis on true understanding being bound up in the person of Christ. Look what he says in verse 4, and we already Read it. Read it again. I say this in order that no one may delude you, that is, mislead you or deceive you, with plausible arguments, that is, with persuasive speech. False teachers who are persuasive are the ones who are dangerous to the souls of men. They're the wolves who threaten the flock. Right? I mean, if they weren't persuasive, they wouldn't be threatening wolves. Be like little gophers maybe digging some holes around here, a little nuisance. Maybe step in a hole that's a bother, but they're not a real threat. But the ones who are persuasive, they're a threat. And Paul wanted to effectively equip the Colossians against the persuasive arguments of those who would lead them into error. And he did this by explaining that in Christ... They had access to all the wealth of complete understanding and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Nothing could be added to that. Those who claim to possess some additional secret or special knowledge regarding spiritual matters have no real knowledge to offer. That's the point. What can you tell me in addition to all that I can find in Christ. O guru, O wise one, you who have a cult following. Charles Spurgeon, we saw this in our study. This is, this is a fantastic quote. This man, Charles Spurgeon, began his ministry. He was a famous preacher. He's known as the Prince of Preachers. He began his ministry at New Park Street Church in London, which is later named the Metropolitan Tabernacle in 1854. It's a little back in time. You know how old he was when he began this ministry at this particular church? 19. 19. So here's an excerpt from his very first sermon at this church. And we saw this if you, if you were in the study this week. This was put up on like, I need that quote. That's perfect. Remember, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. 
in Christ, we have been knit together unto all the wealth of complete understanding. So here's what he said. I would propose that the subject of the ministry in this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. If I am asked, asked to say, what is my creed? I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. The body of divinity, think statement of faith, systematic theology, what have you, the body of divinity to which I pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is Jesus Christ, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. So as a general note on this subject now, again being equipped to withstand the persuasive speech of those who might lead us into error, the scriptures are to be our litmus test to determine if someone is presenting us with false teaching, erroneous teaching. You know, people can persuade in many ways. I mean, again, persuasive doesn't mean true. You can be completely wrong, but be persuasive and lead people into error. People can persuade by appealing to reason. But if that reasoning runs contrary to the scriptures, then whatever they're seeking to persuade you of is not according to Christ. People can persuade by appealing to emotions, tug at your heartstrings. But if those feelings run contrary to the scriptures, then whatever they are seeking to persuade you of is not according to Christ. People can persuade by appealing to authority and authority. But according to the scriptures, Christ is the head of all rule and authority, so checkmate. There's your litmus test. You measure it by the scriptures. That's how you check persuasion from those who want to teach you spiritual things to see if it is legitimate, if it is true, if it is good, or if it is false, erroneous, and evil. Now we're getting close to the end here, but I want to mention before we move to this final verse, let's not forget, what else did Paul mention? He not only had spoken of this being knit together to all the wealth of complete understanding, this whole emphasis on understanding and wisdom and knowledge found in Christ, but don't forget, he had also mentioned that they had been knit together in the love of God. And I would say that this also would have served as an effective defense for them against the false teachers who were seeking to persuade them towards religious ritualism and asceticism, harsh treatment of the body, very spiritual. Because that would be a move that the thing the false teachers were peddling, religious rituals, ritualism and asceticism, this would be a move away from the loving fellowship of the church 
that is fueled by the love of God and towards a cold, self-absorbed, self-serving religious individualism. That's really what works-based religion is or works-based religious disciplines are. It's cold, self-absorbed, self-serving individualism. There's no love in that. There's no warmth in that. This clearly would be a a huge step in the wrong direction. As it moves away from the very likeness of God, who being three persons in one essence, has loving fellowship within himself. It's moving away from the likeness of God to go retreat within yourself and be really spiritual and only focused on you. So if someone presents you with spiritual teaching, you should ask yourself, will this move me towards loving the Father more, loving the Son more, loving the Spirit more, and loving my brothers and sisters in Christ more. Is that what this will move me to? Or is this just external practices that really have no power in them and no love in them? And then as a final word of encouragement, Paul wrote in verse 5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The terms good order and firmness picture soldiers drawn up in battle formation and successfully withstanding the onslaught of the enemy. Good order and stability. Firmness. And this means that despite the confusion being spread around by the false teachers, the Colossians had been holding the line and remaining firm in their faith in Christ. Not merely as individuals, but collectively as a band of brothers. And Paul knew this because of the report Epaphras had given him, and he says he was rejoicing from afar, yet as if you were right in their midst. I am with you in spirit. I am rejoicing seeing your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So as long as they saw that their sufficiency was in knowing Christ, they would not only hold the line, but advance it. They would continue in the faith and in the hope of the gospel, and they indeed would go on to grow up in and mature in Christ and experience all the riches of complete understanding in him that come through knowing him and bask in the love of God that had knit them together with an unbreakable bond. And so the same would be for us, and that really would be the driving point, to see that our sufficiency is in knowing Christ because it is in him that we have been secured in the love of God, and it is in him that we have access to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's the source of life. He is our life. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness and redemption. He is our hope. He is our glory. So it's in him we rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for allowing us to look upon these letters that the Apostle Paul had written to various people and churches, Lord, especially this letter that we're working through now, 
to see the, the things that you had written down through him, Lord, as a means to encourage those of us who are in Christ to be stable and steadfast and continue in this faith, continue in this grace in which we stand. Thanks to your incredible mercy and love, initiating to rescue us from our sin and reconcile us to yourself. Lord, we pray that that we might be encouraged in our hearts and equipped with this glorious knowledge of the realities of our salvation that is in your Son, in whom we have been clothed with righteousness and in whom we have been joined to you in love and knit together, knit together to one another in love and in whom we find everything we need for life and godliness. May we continue to look to him as sufficient for all things, everything we need to know. May we seek the face of Christ, seek his wisdom, follow his example, follow in his steps. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us, and thank you for ruling over us in love and showing us the way to true, abundant life before God. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your continued ministry on our behalf, interceding for us. We pray that you continue to empower us by your spirit to honor you with our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.